no trains so far, except for the one Fedchak <laughs> mentioned. So that's good. All right. I'm Russell Schmidt of the Valley Jazz Cooperative, and this is the Q&T Podcast. Today, I'm sharing questions and tangents with jazz composer, arranger, educator, trombonist, Paul Ferguson. Join us as we talk about the emotional heft of musical memory, the serendipity of finding the right teacher at the right time, and even consider the overriding cultural ethos permeating Northeast Ohio. And off we go. I want to welcome Paul Ferguson. He's the director of jazz studies at Case Western Reserve University and is also the artistic director of the Cleveland Jazz Orchestra. I've known Paul for about 35 years and find him to be as deep philosophically and as well-read as just about any musician I've ever known. It's my great pleasure to be with you today, Paul. Wow, thanks, Russ. That's quite an introduction. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's all downhill from here, friend. <laughs> I'd say so. Yeah. So I was hoping we could start by having you speak a little bit about your current day-to-day life as a writer and as a performer and the sorts of gigs you do, the people or ensembles you get to play with or write for and so forth. Okay. Um, well, first of all, Russ, you and I were together at Eastman School of Music 35 years ago, and most of the people who were in our genre uh, seemed to gravitate toward New York City. That's a place that I never developed a strong fondness for. Uh, in the middle 80s, it was a little tougher city. Uh, I, was, I really wanted to end up in a place like Cleveland, actually, because it seemed like a, a place where I could really blossom and, and be needed, I guess. And um, so I grew up in northeast Ohio. So I'm, my goal, and um, I'm happy to say, or just thankful to say that it's, it's worked out. My goal was to have a nice blend of teaching, performing, and writing music. So that's what I do. Um, rarely do all three in one day. But uh, during the school year, I teach a lot at Case. I, I teach trombone. I teach arranging. I teach improvisation. I direct some jazz bands. And then uh, as artistic director of the Cleveland Jazz Orchestra, I, I make programming, but especially I get to write music for the band. So in the course of a year, uh, I'll write, oh, 40 or 50 arrangements uh, for various size groups. Some of those are just for octet and behind vocals, so it's not that much. I also write music for the Cleveland Pops and uh, for other miscellaneous stuff that comes up. And uh, and I then I perform the Cleveland Jazz Orchestra and perform with different groups uh, here or there. And uh, what a pleasure that is. Hey, man, can we start with uh, Eastman and work backwards from there? Can you tell me about your educational background and, and what got you the skill sets you needed to have this career as a teacher slash performer slash writer? Well, uh, yeah, I'll try not to get emotional here <laughs> because uh, well, here's – Something happened to me about five years ago. I was in Chicago uh, attending the Chicago Lyric Opera, Civic Opera. I forget. They were doing Porgy and Bess by George Gershwin. And I'm listening to the opera, and I just, uh, all of a sudden, I find tears running down my face. And uh, although the music was beautiful and the story is moving, it wasn't because of that. It's because I realized that I had the opera essentially memorized and had had it memorized since I was about in eighth grade because we had the complete opera in our home. And the reason we had it in our home was because my mother uh, had it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. My mother had a wonderful music collection. My father enjoyed music, but he was nowhere near as passionate as my mother. And I just thought, 
uh, I grew up in Stark County, Ohio. That's uh, Canton, Ohio, essentially. It's a pro football hall of fame. It's a blue collar county there where you have uh, God, football, and country and whatever order. <laughs> it's Friday <laughs> night, it's football. <laughs> if it's Sunday right. morning, it's God. And yep. the rest of the week, maybe it's country. I don't know. All right. But, uh, and I just thought to myself, this this is a tremendous gift to have been given to, you know, have Porgy and Bess deep inside your head. And what are you going to do with that knowledge? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to exercise that responsibly? Are you going to try to develop it, cultivate it? And then I remembered the music lessons that my mother paid for and and just uh, how she set the table in a way. Um, in the summer of 1969, uh, my mother wanted to make sure that we saw George Zell conduct Brahms Fourth at Blossom Music Center. This was only a year before Zell died. Mm-hmm. So every night before we went to bed, she made us listen to Brahms Fourth. Now, I always fell asleep toward the middle of the first movement, but I know that first movement cold. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. so, so anyway, that growing up in that sort of household, uh, and again, I, I think that's unique, uh, at least it's probably no other family in Stark County had the complete Borgian and Bess, uh, probably. Who knows? It's, it's sure. possible a few others did. But uh, that stuff got in deep and it created a sense of responsibility uh, on top of that, I had uh, I have a sister who's uh, she was seven years ahead of me in school, who practiced like crazy and uh, was not uh, averse to reminding me that I was not practicing enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I also have a very artistic brother. So it just uh, we all encourage each other in our own ways, and uh, so at, at least in my life, I feel like I'm trying to honor the legacy of my mother and father. Uh, and justify the encouragement of my brother and sister, as well as the teachers I had in high school and college, and of course, uh, Rayburn Wright and Bill Dobbins in graduate school. Beautiful. Um, What people had a major influence over your development as a creative artist? And I know that they're different uh, people. You just mentioned Ray Wright and Bill Dobbins, Mm -hmm. but I know Buddy and some other folks there. So it might not just be about as a a writer, but as a trombonist as well. Uh, Can you cite, besides your sister cajoling you to practice even more often, um, what what other great influences led you to where you are now as a creative person? Yeah, it's it's just uh, a... Schopenhauer used to say that when you look back on your life, you you find people entering uh, as if in a play, and uh, people are entering your life at what you know in retrospect appears to be with perfect timing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, for me, it was rather astonishing timing that my first trombone teacher, his name is Chaz Baker, uh, returned from a gig in Vienna. He left a gig in Vienna. <laughs> <laughs> to come back to Northeast Ohio. He was kind of a home buddy anyway. But, sure. Uh, and then he started teaching brass at uh, my high school just as I was starting to play the trombone. And then right away he put in front of me some of the great jazz trombone records, records by Frank Rosalino and Bill Watrous and J.J. Johnson. So uh, again, uh, I just feel thankful that he, th- he looked at me and said he should have this information he'll he'll be able to do something with this and that's the best thing you can do for any student is just introduce them and uh it's a bit of a spiritual thing what, what kind of soil is it falling on hmm. so you you hope for the best for all your students and try to cultivate your own soil yourself yeah. so Chaz baker is one uh, every teacher that i had i had great teachers at university of akron roland pellucci 
uh, my trombone teacher, Edward Zadrozny. Uh, Pat Pace was a local uh, pianist in uh, Akron who was uh, extremely helpful. And um, other various other relationships that uh, all provided inspiration. Can I can I back it up to Chaz and just ask a question? Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough to be one of the performers on your big band Christmas album. Did Chaz do one of the arrangements on that recording? Ch- yeah, Chaz did uh, the arrangement of Away in a Manger, yeah. which, which features Russell Schmidt on the piano. Available from me for ten ninety nine, there uh, two you go. for twenty dollars, uh, <laughs> and uh, so so Chaz not only taught me uh, trombone, he also taught jazz trombone, music theory, and taught me the basics of jazz ba- jazz piano. He taught me some of the voicings you learn on uh, all blues, you know, boom, doo, sure. and after that, I was just hooked. And again, just being in the right place at the right time. I, I took up music a little bit late, not until I was 15. Mm-hmm. Had I started when I was, uh, most of my friends started when they were 11 in fifth grade. Uh, had I started then, I often wonder how I would have responded to the much less likable teacher who I would have ended up with. <laughs> Maybe that would have stunted me. Who sure, knows? Uh, sure. That combined with braces. and So the, the, the timing had to be right. And right. Uh, very thankful for that. Beautiful. And I should mention that Big Band Christmas is uh, a favorite holiday album of our mutual friend Maria Schneider, one oh. of the leading writers <laughs> of our generation. So you and I were at a panel discussion at Eastman probably seven years ago in which Maria revealed that that's her like favorite holiday album. So kudos to you and also to Chaz Baker and Rich Shanklin. I think that's Rich. That's right. Another, and, another mentor of mine. Rich contributed two arrangements yeah. on there. And uh, I, I should mention that uh, one of the things Maria liked best about the Christmas Big Band CD is that I kept it under 40 minutes. Ah. Uh, <laughs> she said, that makes a lot more sense for people with today's busy lifestyles. There you go. That's true. Well, let's let's go down that path. I've, I've also heard her talk about how she'll spend hours thinking about the track list on a new recording and having modest frustration that audiences do not consume an album from the first track to the last track. I'm reminded, I'd have to look it up to see what it is, but I'm reminded that Prince once put out an album where the entire album was track one, so you could not (laughs) screw around with his CD. If you were going to listen to the album, you were going to listen to it from the first piece through the last piece. And, uh, you know, there have been changes in how people consume music. How do you feel that impacts you when you're putting writing projects together. I've been fortunate enough to be on a number of your albums, four or five of them. And uh, do you give much thought to how people consume it? Or do you feel like, nope, this is my artwork. I put it out there and people consume it however they want. It's it's a little bit of a mixture because, uh, you know, you can't play the uh, artiste uh, card too heavily. Uh, at least that, that's just not my nature. We, we all want to... Uh, a mutual friend of ours, Bob Sands, was talking about how uh, he wanted to get some house. Mm-hmm. By that, he meant some applause. Sure. So he, he thought he wondered if he should like play some squeaky notes on the saxophone really high and maybe get people revved up. But uh, you know, if if I wanted to, uh, there's plenty of complicated stuff in my compositions and all that. But but still, there's a there's one thing that Bill Dobbins said. He was talking about music of Claire Fisher and, and saying that uh, as, as complex as Claire's music can be. Uh, it still has a fair amount of street feel, and I, I always that that has stuck with me quite a bit. So, uh, in spite of uh, you want to maintain some street feel, but at the same time, um, 
<laughs> this is becoming ever more tangential. Uh, the Duke Ellington's assistant or co-composer for many years, a man named Billy Strayhorn, he, he wrote a, a simple t- a 12-bar blues called Blues to Be There. It's an incredibly simple bass line. The melody is the same thing over and over again, but the inside parts are some of the most complex things I've ever encountered. I, I, I've studied it. I couldn't play it from memory now in spite of repeated attempts. And it's so in a, in a way, uh, I'm trying to maintain a bit of a street feel to have some accessibility while also satisfying whatever uh, macabre inside. Uh, they're not demons. They're just, just trying to address internal issues, internal sounds within the band, just as, you know, maybe subconsciously we're trying to deal with internal issues within our own psyches, maybe. If there's, if, if there's an analogy there, sure. that might be a small part of what I'm trying to accomplish. Sure. Well, um, I'm going to ask a question, but I want to table that question for a second because I want to keep going down this road. You talk about uh, sort of maybe an interior monologue one has as you're wrestling with artistic or emotional components in one's life. And I'm immediately thinking of a great piece of yours from the Rays of Light album entitled Masks. And Mm. is there a programmatic nature to the name of the piece Masks? And if so, would you share with our audience what that piece was about? Because it's one of the most remarkable pieces to come from your pen. Well, and and I am am proud of that piece. I I try to introduce that to students. And I've even given it to my non-music class that I teach. Uh, just to give them an idea about how to develop ideas and all. Uh, the, the title is inspired by a, a four-volume series that the mythologist Joseph Campbell put out called The Masks of God. And, um, and then it's also augmented by how uh, just in the course of life we wear different masks. I have a, a certain persona as a teacher. I have a certain persona as I'm speaking with you into this microphone, a certain persona in front of my children, a little different persona in front of my wife, my coworkers. So it's wearing a variety of masks. Some people would call that a variety of hats. Uh, hats seems a little less threatening. <laughs> you know, wear a different hat. Okay, that's sure. fine. But a mask, that suggests something deeper. Uh, so the idea in masks was simply to take, uh, it's it inspired a little bit by... Um, Thelonious Monk's composition, Crisscross, where he simply takes a, a simple motive and just develops it. And uh, Gunther Schuller said, this is an example of abstract jazz composition. And I thought, well, if Gunther Schuller thinks that's a good idea, that's something I should give it a try. So <laughs> <laughs> trying to please your elders there. That's, sure. that's, been a, that's been a large part of it, trying to please my sister and practicing more, trying to please a variety of teachers. And again, that reveals something about my psyche that uh, could be favorable or unfavorable. Because uh, so, sometimes you need to have a little rebellious streak too. <laughs> sure. So, uh, but no, that's masks is simply about taking an idea and uh, presenting it in different ways. So, uh, along a spiritual line, we have to understand that uh, we will be open to different spiritual ideas depending upon where we're at in our own mental development. If we're at a pre-rational stage. We'll have one reaction, perhaps, to the early chapters of Genesis. If we're at a rational stage, perhaps another. But if we enter a transrational poetic stage, we might have still yet another reaction. And then then there are shades within each of those three rather distinct stages. So uh, that's uh, 
<laughs> it's getting a little far out there, but... Uh, Actually, this seems like the perfect time to introduce the audience to your wonderful composition, Masks, from the Paul Ferguson Jazz Orchestra recording, Rays of Light. Here is Masks.
What a fantastic piece. Well, I really appreciate that. Hey, can I ask you something else, though, returning to that earlier question I wanted to follow up on? It was about a comment Bill Dobbins made. The question I wanted to ask was with with regards to street feel. You said Mm -hmm. Bill specifically ascribed the term street feel to Mm -hmm. Claire Fisher. Did he mean an earthiness to the music? Was he talking about a rhythmic component? Was he talking about a bluesy harmonic component? What exactly did Bill mean by street feel that uh, that lended an air of authenticity to Claire's music? Yeah, I think with with Claire, it's... uh, probably tilted toward the rhythmic mm-hmm. but uh, but Claire has a kind of a, a, a hidden blues in there with within his internal parts it, his a lot of his mel- I can't think of too many Claire does he's written a few blues pieces but I don't really necessarily think of the blues overtly so much with Claire it's more of a, an internal thing so um, but uh, uh, another person uh, who said something that just I mean, again got me thinking was uh, David Berger. Uh, now David is very uh, well. Sorry, Dave, a very conservative jazz composer. Sure, uh, he's very influenced by Duke Ellington, and I, I think just as George Zell felt like you know the Cleveland Orchestra, Zell felt like his responsibility was to you know, sort of protect the uh, the legacy of. Uh, 19th century and early 20th century classical composition. He wasn't interested in the avant-garde. Well, Dave Berger is really about protecting the legacy of Ellington Strayhorn and things like that. Uh, But one thing Dave talked about was uh, whether or not music had blues content. And I thought, that's that's good. That's like saying salt on your vegetables or meat Hmm. or whatever. It's like, yeah, you you need a little bit of that. And uh, that's something that personally... I have kept. Now, uh, composers like uh, like Maria, who I admire so much, I don't find much blues in their music at all, but I admire her music for different reasons. Sure. So it's, it's just a different thing. So it's just my visceral thing is a, a bit of street feel, some blues con- content, and uh, usually some interesting things going on on the inside. <laughs> sure. Well, can I ask for you as a writer yourself, how much of your writing is freely intended to express your artistic goal and how much of it is hitting a target uh, vis-a-vis vocal charts? You know, you have to do a specific <laughs> uh-huh. target for a vocalist. Well, uh, since I took over the Cleveland Jazz Orchestra, that's been part of my gig has been uh, writing for the band for specific occasions. And just it just so happens we've been doing... We've done uh, four or five concerts with this uh, local group called the Musical Theater Project. So uh, we've done whole concerts of music by George Gershwin. So I had to do about 20 Gershwin arrangements. Well, that, that's a pleasure. Uh, and when I do stuff like that, I, I sort of put on my uh, Ray Wright mask. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and I remember Ray Wright, uh, you know, he, Ray was uh, possibly a bit of a workaholic. <laughs> he was at school all the time and also always writing and teaching. Uh, and then he would like show up one day with uh, twelve scores underneath his, you know, elbow, his arm, or whatever. Ray, what's that? He says, "Oh, I just did twelve charts for Susanna McCorkle." Sure. Okay. I was lucky to perform those with the Rochester Philharmonic in nineteen eighty-five, I think. And uh, what a pleasure that was! And but uh, he was doing the gig. Right. He was making her look good and providing arrangements that had great craft to them. And once in a while, if you were listening closely, you'd hear him put in one of his little 
moves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll call it a move. And, uh, and you know, something just for his pleasure that would fly by most people. And, uh, and a lot of it doubtlessly flew past me. So when I'm doing that work, I'm often referencing Ray or just just thinking, okay, this is do the gig, do it well, do it with some pride. And then um, also, and, and also back to Bill Dobbins too. Although Ray and Bill Dobbins, uh, they were sort of personality opposites in certain ways and had different ways of operating. Uh, but they both did so much. I, but I did a gig with Bill about five years ago, and he, he gave me a nice compliment. Uh, we'd played some of my artistic music, but also some of my more functional music. And he said, well, Paul, you're an artist and a craftsman. Not too many people do that. He said, that's pretty good. And coming from Bill, that was like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. So, that's fantastic. So anyway, uh, now w- one regret is that I, I haven't done quite as much pure composing. And uh, I, I think the, the word pure is not chosen too lightly because really to do pure composing um, – and I guess pure improvisation or whatever, mm-hmm. it, it, it suggests a purification process. It suggests a process where you are just trying to strip away all that is not needed and only keep and develop that which is intrinsic. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's impossible to do in life, but we strive toward an ideal as best we can, whether we're composing or just living our lives. So Sure. So I miss I miss that process a little bit. Um, I try not to think about it too much. I just get to work. <laughs> sure. Well, I also think this pure uh, concept. I think it's easy to look back through rose-colored glasses at one's collegiate days. I think probably the most pure writing I did was when I was a grad student at Eastman. Mm-hmm. It's right. like I get to write for this ensemble. I get to write whatever I want. The people are technically proficient enough to play it without too big a sweat. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a certain freedom there that was awesome, but had not tremendous connection to the real world. It wasn't like Eastman was vocational training. Mm-hmm. Eastman was, uh, for us at that time, sort of this great golden castle at, on the mountaintop there. Mm-hmm. And I should mention for our listeners, uh, it's easy to look up Bill Dobbins. He remains at Eastman, at least through now, as we record this podcast, although his decades there are, are quickly drawing to a close. Um, but Ray Wright is a little harder for our internet generation age to find out right. more about. Yeah, that's true. And the little uh, thumbnail sketch I want to give our listeners about Rayburn Wright, who was a mentor teacher to both Paul and I, is that Ray Wright went into the International Association of Jazz Educators Hall of Fame in a class of three, and that class was Ray Wright, Duke Ellington, and Charlie Parker. Oh, and that, that tells you all you need to know about Rayburn Wright, an amazing teacher, arranger, uh, yeah, just great human being. Well, and this, uh, when I think of the relationship between Ray Wright and Bill Dobbins, it, it actually, uh, it's it's sort of biblical in a way. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, well, here's how, is that uh, Bill Dobbins was extremely explicit. Like, I would bring in my music to Bill Dobbins, and he would sit down and play at the piano, and he'd say, well, what you've done here is okay, but here is how Duke Ellington would have approached it. And he would give this encyclopedic sort of lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's how Thad Jones would have approached it. Here's what Jelly Roll Morton may have done. Here's what Gil Evans would have done. And it was just so much explicit information. So there's a time for that, okay? But then Ray Wright, I would take in a, less, I would take in a composition to him. 
And sometimes there'd be like a, a bit of silence that he might scratch his chin and Ray might sometimes, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering this with rose colored glasses or ears or whatever, but uh, Ray would often just scratch his chin and say, you probably ought to rethink letter L. <laughs> which would be like a 12-bar passage in the middle of my piece. And, sure. I, and I'd say, what do you mean? He says, well, it's kind of like a rethink letter L. And he might not say much more than that, but he realized that if I rethought this 12-measure section in the middle, that would have implications for letter B and letter T. And I might do letter C backwards then mm-hmm. or something like that. So this was teaching th- through the implicit method. So in our lives, we need a mixture of explicit instruction, but also sort of implicit hints, okay? So uh, a good example might be in the Old Testament. Uh, The Ten Commandments are rather explicit. But then we get to the book Jeremiah, which might be about 600 years later, and we have the, the word says, the day will come when I will write my law upon my people's hearts, and they will know me. This is implicit, Mm-hmm. Okay, this is just a, a new outlook on life, just rethinking things. Okay, hopefully not overthinking, guilty of that often enough. But this mixture of the explicit and the implicit, and I guess the explicit, at least in my music, if, if I talk about the street feel, it's, it's trying to have at least some element of the music be explicit, you know, something that feels good. But then inside, little hints, you know, if you dig into this a little deeper, you might find some more, you might find some stuff you don't really like uh, or might make you uncomfortable or, but it might have implications too. So anyway, those two people were a great tag team of the explicit and the implicit and uh, grateful for that experience. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Can I ask you a question about uh, your experiences at Case Western? You've been there for 31 years and I just wonder how has teaching influenced you as a creative artist yourself? Well, (laughs) in a very humbling way. Uh, I find that uh, some of the stuff that I present to students, I'm finally starting to understand myself after 30 years. <laughs> stuff that I was showing students 30 years ago is saying, hey, this is really important. And, uh, and I thought that I was communicating something about it. But all of a sudden, I feel like I'm understanding it on a deeper level. I'm able to uh, offer a more of a multi-perspectival uh, approach to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... That's, I think, the main thing about teaching. The cliche is that you learn so much from your students, um, to a point. But what I think what you learn is that as you present information to students over and over, you start to see it from a different perspective yourself. And maybe the way the students absorb it affects your perspective as well. So uh, that's just it. A lot of going over the same stuff. Uh, I, I still introduce my students to uh, Waltz for Claire by mm-hmm. Bill, just because there's so much stuff in there. And that's, that's still the, the act of introducing that to them still is affecting how I write music now. So Beautiful. Beautiful. I want to uh, wrap up our time together by asking you a question with regards to why you do what you do. I've been fortunate enough to record with you a number of times. I think our first time was 1999. Was that your Mm -hmm. friend's album? That's right. Um, I'm on a couple of Jazz Vespers albums where you think about and contemplate uh, more sacred music in a jazz setting. Uh, 
And with the Rays of Light recording and the Big Band Christmas and Live at the Bob Stop, a number of recordings. So I've been really privileged to have a long-term musical collaboration with you. And I know that you straddle different worlds effectively. Earlier on, I talked about maybe a pure compositional approach in writing a big band chart you really want to write versus here are these octet charts that really need to set up the vocalist for success. How can you best frame the vocalist to succeed in communicating a Gershwin tune? So I know you straddle those worlds, pure music versus hitting targets, but also you straddle both sacred and secular worlds as a composer or arranger yourself. And I just wonder what drives that, what drives that integration of different things and ultimately why do you do the many awesome things you do <laughs> as a as a jazz performer and maybe even more so as a jazz composer arranger well uh so many things to address in that question uh first of all uh, <laughs> we have 10 seconds <laughs> my, my great grandfather moved here he was born in 1856 he moved here in the early 1870s to cincinnati and he left behind in a 20-year career as a cemetery monument maker uh, the most remarkable monuments in Cincinnati. They, they look like trees going out of the ground. They're so totally unique. And part of it for me is what are you leaving behind? And uh, what attention to detail are you showing? And, and uh, when I make the recordings, it's, you, know, the, you hope to break even these mm -hmm. days especially. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really hard. Sure. But I'm leaving behind a diary in a way. I'm, I'm leaving behind, you know, people need to hear what Jack Shant sounded like in 1999. People need to hear, you know, Russ Schmidt playing piano on my recordings throughout over the last 20 years. People need, we need to make a document about that. So uh, that's that's part of it. And then the, now, regarding the uh, sacred music issue, uh, I've uh, been inspired to do that uh, from a number of factors, but uh, when you look at uh, great composers like Sergei Rachmaninoff wrote uh, Vespers, oh my gosh, the great, one of the great choral masterpieces of the early 20th century. Stravinsky wrote the Symphony of Psalms and then wrote a 12-tone uh, Requiem Canticles for his own funeral. Oh, my. And, and these are people that lived in complex times, complex philosophical times, but they were still able to hold on to a spiritual dimension of life and be inspired by it. So I, I grew up in a Methodist church where we sang hymns by Mendelssohn and Haydn and Beethoven and Vaughn Williams and other people's, Charles Wesley and all that stuff. So to, to kind of maintain part of that tradition, uh, to me, is just... Uh, it's, it's, it's natural. It's just another uh, avenue for inspiration. So, That's beautiful. Um, it's been my privilege today to speak with longtime friend and great musician, Paul Ferguson. Paul, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Russell. It's a great pleasure. Paul Ferguson's recordings and self-published compositions are available at paulfergusonmusic.com. Friends in the Midwest can find Paul's performance schedule with the Cleveland Jazz Orchestra by visiting clevelandjazz.org. And to learn more about the Valley Jazz Cooperative, please visit valleyjazz.org. The VJC Q&T is recorded a little too close to railroad tracks in Tempe, Arizona.